Good morning. I'm Angela Davis. Thank you so much for joining us today. It is the first day of NPR's Winter Member Drive, and I want to remind you that your gift right now helps us reach today's goal of 750 donations from listeners, and we can definitely reach this goal together when you do your part. We know that you rely on trusted community information from NPR News, and in turn, we rely on you to strengthen this public resource for all Minnesotans. So make your first ever gift or increase your gift now at nprnews.org or by calling us at 800-227-2811. This hour, we're showcasing some of the work we've been doing on the 9 a.m. talk show to educate everybody about good health. On Wednesdays, I like to tackle wellness. And so today, we're focusing on the physical and emotional care related to the heart. February is American Heart Month. And this year, the focus is on empowering Black adults to educate or rather to reduce their risk of heart problems. That's because the CDC says that Black Americans ages 35 to 54 are two times more likely to die from heart disease than white adults. So this hour, you're going to hear from cardiologists about why that is and what can be done about it. And we're also going beyond eating healthy and exercising. We'll revisit some shows that deal with how to sleep better and how to forgive someone to ease that emotional and physical agony. So let's start with forgiveness. I love a conversation that we had with Mary Hayes Greco back in December. She's the director of the Midwest Institute for Forgiveness Training in Minneapolis. She's also the author of the book, Unconditional Forgiveness, a simple and proving method to forgive everyone and everything. As always on our show, we took your phone calls and we asked if you're struggling to forgive someone or if you have forgiven someone in the past. I started by asking Mary to explain forgiveness. Forgiveness is the profound and refreshing relief that comes when you release an expectation that has been causing you to suffer. When you're carrying in your mind this big should that shouldn't have happened. They should have been different. They should have been there for me. They should have told the truth. Should, 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 should. That's an expectation that we have of a person or situation. And it's a reasonable expectation. You know, it's, it makes sense. And we're holding it in our mind, but it's kind of glued in our mind. And every time reality shows us something different, we have that static between what we think should be and what actually is. So the relief comes when we're able to shift our expectations of what a person is or would be or what they had done to a preference. Like, you know, I'd really prefer that you were easy to be with. In Minneapolis, Marcy is on the line. Good morning, Marcy. What did you want to share with us? One thing that I struggle with in my family is how to forgive when the hurt keeps going. And if there's emotional abuse and scapegoating and messages sent around that you can go here and you can't go there and What I've struggled with, and this has gone on for some years now, is how to forgive when I'm being asked to carry weight that doesn't feel like mine. She talks about it continues. Like there's the past. Because the person is uh, dysfunctional, toxic, personality disordered, mentally ill. So this is where I think to do what I call preemptive forgiveness, which is, you know, what's going to bug you. You know how this person's going to act. This has happened time after time. So why not? get ready for it and do a really nice hunk of forgiveness work around this individual and that individual and get it out of your system, chances are very good the next time you see them, uh, you'll be surprised at 
how much less bothered you feel because you don't have that backlog, that pot of past experiences that have piled up. It's just, oh, they're doing this. We have to have boundaries. I I think time is a great boundary. I can, all right, I'm going to go there for an hour and then I'm leaving, you know, (laughs) or I'm going to go there with my friend, my best friend. You say it's a big, bigger gathering and they're going to sit right next to me or they're going to sit across from me and wink at me when somebody starts acting weird. We can drive ourselves nuts asking why, why is this person doing this? Why did they say that? Why do ah? the point is they did and it doesn't actually mean anything about you at all. It's really their bad behavior. But you need to take some time maybe aside from the situation to get your irritation out, to get your anger out. Kathy in Minneapolis asks this how do you recover from real trauma and abuse, situations that aren't forgivable? I guess I'd invite Kathy and anyone who's struggling inside a story that feels unforgivable, that it empowers us to claim that everything is healable. So uh, I have heard some really pretty big bad stories in my life, and uh, I have been amazed at what stories people are able to get through. And what you really, we really need to understand before we get started is we're not excusing it. We're not, forgiving is not excusing, it's not condoning, it's not saying it's okay, it's not putting ourselves open for further abuse. We really do free ourselves up, even of terrible physical trauma, even of terrible sexual assault. I've heard all of these stories, and I have been amazed to see just the phoenix of the human spirit rise up out of this terrible story because they finally went there and, and let it go. I also want to say that in terms of trauma, severe trauma, I found it helpful to pair the eight steps to freedom and the forgiveness method with various trauma techniques. Sometimes we have rage inside. Sometimes we are just really, really, really mad. And of course, we it's not actually safe or appropriate in most circumstances to express that to the other person. But in our method, we ex- we do express it. We get the, we put the empty chair in front of us, we start in with the eight steps, and we, we let it rip. And it only takes about 20 minutes to get all your anger out. And then it gets really dissolved in the later steps. Do you literally pull out an empty chair? Yes, we do. And then what happens? And then we enter into step one, which is, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to let this go. I'm going to let this anger go. I'm going to get all this bitterness out today. I am. Yes, here I go. And step two, where then you lean in and you feel like, where am I carrying this? Oh, it's in my heart. No, it's in my throat. It's like, "Mm, where am I carrying it? And I help people. I facilitate. I help them like find it in their bodies, and then begin to let it speak. Express their emotions. Express their emotions. And it's not pretty. And it feels like, oh, my God, I'm so afraid to touch into this. I'm afraid I'll blow up the building or or I'll start crying for three weeks. I won't be able to stop. But you know what? Really, when you process your emotions, it takes about 20 minutes. You just have to really go there all the way. So we are going to talk in detail the eight steps to freedom that you write about in, in your book. Step one would you and two, you just shared, stating your will to make a change. Step two, expressing your emotions. And maybe um, step three is, is... Where you identify your expectations from your mind. So we've gone from will to emotions to mind. In my mind, I really think that he should have done this. He shouldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. So releasing the expectations. Mm-hmm. We say what we wish mm-hmm. wish had happened, and then we acknowledge that it didn't happen, and we're letting it go. Step four is when we say uh, to ourselves and the, the other person and to life, okay, you know what? This is your 
your problem. This is your your issue. I'm I am releasing my responsibility for your issues. They're yours, and I have responsibility just for me. And we visualize a healthy personal space, like a like a sphere of light around us. This is me. This is my space. This is who I am. This is what I do, and I'm not. Uh, what they do is not a reflection on me. And then we move into the step five, where we really open up to life again in a new way. We declare it. I open up to life to get exactly what I need from here on out. And we just really kind of uh, open up the channel, so to speak, between our personal self that's been kind of closed down and wounded and our, our higher self that is creative and and happy and joyous. And we start kind of a new uh, openness to our spiritual uh, connection. And then uh, we move into step six where we really visualize a source of healing light that is going to come in, come into our personality, our body, our feelings, our mind. Because we've opened up. We've opened up we and we now healing. visualize this healing energy. And whether you believe there's actually healing energy pouring into you from above or you're looking at it as a visualization, it doesn't matter. It works. It works. And a lot of people actually see their heads fill up with light or they feel a warmth all over or they feel peace descending. There's something physical that happens. I, I open up to the life and I bring in this healing energy and then into step seven, I'm going to send some out to them. I'm going to send a visualize a big sunbeam of unconditional love towards this person I'm forgiving and and letting them go. I send you some goodwill and I release you to be yourself and back to the full circle step eight. What's good about this person? What's good about this situation? What's good about me? And I'm going to keep my mind rested there. All right. uh, Let's take another phone call in YZ. Let's talk to Don. Don is on the line. And Don, what do you want to tell us or ask us about forgiveness? I certainly understand the benefits of the self-care around um, forgiveness, but where it runs afoul for me is that um, my circumstances that um, two police officers um, killed my 16-year-old son four years ago on a mm-hmm. botched mental health call. And for those of us who may be in a situation where uh, someone's to blame for something else, it, it's almost as though I'm duty-bound or honor-bound not to forgive and um, that that's a violation in doing so. This this takes us right to the heart of the big questions around forgiveness. Should I forgive something that is so horribly wrong? Should I forgive somebody that has taken away my loved one? Does that dishonor them? You know, do I need to take a stand forever about this? And we have to say, injustice is injustice. Wrong is wrong. You can't you can't soft pedal that. That's true and true and true. But the question is, are you going to ever have peace in your life anyway? Forgiveness, again, it's it has nothing to do with the intensity of the injustice or the right or the wrong. It's about, are you going to heal? Are you going to heal deeply? Are you going to let go of your expectation that your son would be alive today? Uh, the expectation that those officers had been good people who had been well-trained and um, that the story would have gone entirely differently. These are, of course, the wishes that, that one would have. And you can't, you know, you can't rush it. You have to feel back to the stages of grief. Uh, you know, like in circumstances like that, we we can't just immediately forgive. We can immediately have an intention eventually mm-hmm. to be in forgiveness, but we have to work walk through those those stages of that anger and that sorrow and the waves of pain that are there. And perhaps we can forgive 
pieces of it at a time, but uh, you can be free of it eventually and really uh, retrieve the full love between you and your son in your heart. I just love that conversation about forgiveness on a Wellness Wednesday back in December. That is author and forgiveness expert Mary Hayes Greco responding to some of your calls. So next, we're going to dive into how you can get better sleep. Right now, I want to talk about sleep, getting enough sleep, you know, that good sleep and how the body benefits from sleep and how that all connects with our mood. Dr. Michael Howell is a neurologist at the University of Minnesota, and Dr. Varend Summers is a Mayo Clinic cardiologist. I talked to both of them. Let's listen back to your calls and advice from our guests a few months ago. One way to think about it is you have a blackboard in your brain of a limited amount of information that you can put up there. And so that requires that every night you need to wipe away the stuff that isn't particularly important or salient for you to hold on to the next day. And if you're not sleeping well, you just you end up with a lot of noise, uh, and it can be quite frustrating. Sleep is not a homogenous state. It's a change in, in state activity of the brain from light sleep to deep sleep to REM or rapid eye movement sleep, which is a kind of sleep where we are most likely to dream. Now, from a cardiovascular perspective, each of those stages has dramatic effects on the sympathetic nervous system, that's our fight or flight response on our blood pressure and our heart rates. If you think about your health and wellness, you want to think about nutrition, you want to think about activity, and you want to think about sleep. Put sleep right up there with the other areas of your life that you're trying to improve. In St. Paul, let's talk to one of our listeners. This is Peter. Good morning, Peter. How are you doing? I'm tired. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) I have a uh, toddler and a baby at home, my wife and I, and I'm also the primary caretaker for a mother who has a early dementia. And uh, my wife and I will frequently have a week or two where, you know, we're getting five and a half or six hours. I know that's bad. And obviously we aim for the ideal, but in those circumstances, I'm just wondering if there's a, a nap strategy that uh, the doctors could recommend. Naps are fantastic. I, all all human beings are, are natural nappers, even if we haven't done it that much. There is a natural napping period that all of us have. Most of us don't know it because we're busy working or we're caffeinated or... Or nap- napping at work. <laughs> or dozing. And, I, and actually, and in, my, uh, in my lectures, if someone wants to doze off in front of me, I'm, I'm completely okay with that. It is a difficult situation without any clear... Uh, uh, absolute solution. And, uh, and I, I would agree that try and get as much sleep as you can when you can. The concept of naps is great. The only problem with a nap is in a different context, if it affects your nighttime sleep, then it may be an issue. Then you want to be careful about mm-hmm. napping too much during the day. Let's take another phone call in St. Louis Park. Dave is on the phone. Good morning, Dave. How is your sleep going? It could be better. That's probably why we're all calling in this morning. <laughs> what's getting in the way or what's your question? For me, I'm often not tired until much later at night than my partner. And it feels like no matter what time I go to bed, I have trouble waking up and getting started with the day. I'm, I'm basically a, a serial snooze button hitter. Um, so my question is, how can I find my current ideal sleep schedule that makes it easier just to get up and get started in the, in the morning? And can I train my brain over time to change that schedule? 
So 8 billion people on the planet, 8 billion slightly different circadian rhythms. Your body's 24-hour clock. Some people are naturally later. Some people are naturally earlier. And then, of course, sometimes we are we are in relationships or married to people who have uh, different rhythms, and this can be a challenge. So the first thing to do is just to understand where your rhythm is. Uh, ask yourself, if you didn't have any restraints on your time, if you didn't need to get up for work or school, and you could guilt-free go to bed whenever you felt like it and wake up whenever you were done, no alarm clocks, no one waking you up in the morning, what would that look like? Just ask yourself that question. Once you know what your rhythm is, then you can start to move it to where you would like it to be. The main ways we do this is with bright light in the morning, either sunlight or, since we don't get that in Minnesota at this time of year, <laughs> uh, you can use a light box, a 10,000 Lux light box can be very useful to help advance the circadian rhythm so that it's a little easier to fall asleep uh, earlier. And you use the light in the morning. Melatonin is also useful in small doses for this sort of person uh, with a circadian rhythm delay. But be careful because melatonin to the wrong person can actually make the problem worse. And Stillwater, um, Saeed is awake and calling in. Good morning, Saeed. What did you want to, to ask? My problem is I do not get a sound sleep. <laughs> But I do have some chronic, you know, heart problems and, you know, back pressures and stuff like that. Based on the fact that Saeed has probably hypertension, I think, from what he what he said, there's a, and that he's male and probably um, probably middle-aged or so, his likelihood of having sleep apnea is very high. And, um, you know... Remind uh, us again uh, what sleep apnea yeah. is. So sleep apnea is, is a condition where your airway closes during usually during dream sleep, and, and it, it, it obstructs the airway, so you get hypoxic, your oxygen levels fall, and the only way you prevent the occlusion or reverse it is by waking up. So your brain's waking up regularly during the night, your body's suffering the consequences of the low oxygen, so you get poor sleep, you're tired and sleepy during the daytime, and you tend to be predisposed to high blood pressure and, and an increased level of obesity. All right, let's take another phone call in Minneapolis. Angela is on the line. Good morning, Angela. Good morning. Hi. What did you want to ask or share with us about sleep? So I'd like to share the little bit that I know about something called yoga nidra. And it's not yoga in the typical sense that we think of when we hear the word. Uh, it's more like a sleep meditation, like somebody's calming you down, winding you down, getting you ready for sleep. Sometimes they'll do like breathing exercises with you, like uh, box breathing, mm -hmm. where you breathe in for four seconds, hold for four seconds, out for four seconds, hold again, and then you restart the cycle. That essentially amounts to a, I don't want to get too technical, but it's a 0.1 hertz breathing frequency, which is six breaths a minute, which is the endogenous frequency of the cardiovascular system, the, the, the frequency by which the brain regulates blood pressure. And in our studies, we've shown that when you do this, when you breathe at 0.1 hertz, six breaths a minute, five seconds in, five out, you actually stabilize the cardiovascular system, you lower blood pressure, and you decrease the risk of arrhythmias. Mm. And I am absolutely comfortable with the concept that this breathing frequency also helps you sleep. Uh, let's go to White Bear Lake, where Will is up, awake, on the phone. Good morning, Will. What did you want to ask or share about sleep? I sometimes fall asleep with earphones in um, while I'm listening to maybe soft music or a podcast. 
Um, if I leave them in all night without setting, you know, an auto shutoff time, how might that affect my sleep throughout the night as compared to regular sleep in, in silence? So many people do this. I'm really glad, Will, that you shared this. My teenager does this, and I do come in after she's fallen asleep, and I do take the <gasps> the earphones off of her. Dad? Yeah. Why? Um, because it does, uh, late, later in sleep, particularly in REM sleep, there is complex auditory processing. If you are listening to music, especially if there is music, kind of suddenly will will change its melody, will have will change its volume or... Uh, or uh, overall structure, it can disrupt your sleep, particularly in REM. You want a sleeping environment that is cool, dark, and quiet. That's mm. ideal. Uh, some recent data from some colleagues of mine at Northwestern University have shown that even low levels of ambient light during the night affects the quality of your deep sleep and pushes you in the direction of a higher blood pressure and a less sensitive glucose insulin system, both of which lead to hypertension and diabetes in the long, mm -hmm. which may lead to hypertension and diabetes in the long term. So overall, my advice would be, as, as Michael said, sleep in a cool, quiet, very dark environment with minimal ambient light, with minimal ambient sound. And uh, that, that would have to be, I, I guess, the, the, the optimal recommendation. Are there racial disparities with sleep? Very much so, very much so. We're actually doing um, uh, several studies right now, one in the Somali population, looking at all of the sleep issues that we've discussed. How much sleep apnea do they have? How much insomnia do they have? And and what other sleep disorders do they have? And then earlier, I, I think Michael referred tangentially to cultural issues in, 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 and sleep testing. And here we, we're making the point of doing all of the testing at home with as little burden as possible. And we, we're finding some very interesting data and uh, suggesting that, you know, we, we need to be more sensitive to, to the probability of sleep disorders and maybe associated cardiometabolic problems in Somalis. And the other study we're doing is in Asians, South Asians uh, and, and East Asians, looking at, at the same issues. And, and to, to emphasize a point is that Asians in the United States who've either immigrated or been born here, Somalis who've either immigrated or been born here, Somali Americans, you know, they're very different from, from what they are in their, in their previous uh, countries mm -hmm. or where their ancestors came from. Because the American environment is very different in terms of activity demands and in terms of food availability. Mm. So absolutely, yeah. we need to focus on this area. Dr. Howell, uh, anything to add about racial disparities yeah. and sleep? Yes. The last two years, we have really struggled uh, to provide access for the treatment of sleep apnea, in particular CPAP machines. There has been uh, incredible shortages related to a nationwide recall of one of the manufacturers. And so anyone, anyone out there who has a CPAP machine has probably heard about this or tried to get supplies, have heard about about this problem and this has really compounded the 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 racial disparities in terms of uh, helping individuals get their sleep apnea identified and treated I feel strongly about it is we need to come up with novel ways uh, to meet people where they are to get their sleep in particular sleep apnea identified diagnosed and treated 
That was Dr. Michael Howell, a neurologist at the University of Minnesota, and Dr. Varend Summers, a Mayo Clinic cardiologist, talking about sleep. I love this conversation. We're revisiting some of the uh, topics we've covered on Wednesdays here on the 9 a.m. talk show. And next, we're going to revisit a conversation about heart health and the racial disparities that cardiologists are seeing in heart disease. Right now, we want to focus on our hearts and how to keep them healthy. As you may know, February is American Heart Month. And this year, the American Heart Association is raising awareness about how Black Americans ages 35 to 54 are two times more likely to die from heart disease than white adults. Last year, I spoke with two cardiologists here in Minnesota, Dr. LaPrincess Brewer, an assistant professor at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, and Dr. Courtney Jordan-Beckler, a cardiologist with Alina Health. I asked, um, or I started by asking Dr. Beckler what it is about heart disease that makes it difficult to educate people about and challenging to treat. You know, we start to see plaque develop uh, as early as our teens and 20s that can subsequently lead to real significant heart disease and vascular disease. Um, So because of that, it becomes this lifelong approach that starts with things that happen in our youth and go much through our 20s, 30s, 40s, um, and and becomes something that requires a much more systematic approach to best meet the needs of our communities and individuals. Mm. And uh, Dr. Brewer, what have you found out about heart disease that maybe makes it a little bit different than some of the other conditions that it's it's very easy to talk about and that people seem to understand easily? Really, only about a third of African-American women even know that heart disease is their greatest threat. And heart disease is the number one killer of African-American women. And one in two African-American women who are age 20 or older have some form of heart disease. So I've really made it my passion to increase awareness about heart disease before even treating it. And about 50,000 African-American women die annually from heart disease. So this is a huge problem within our community. So what is going on with Black women? Is it genetics? Is it the lifestyle? Why is that the case that that, uh, Black women are much more likely to have cardiovascular disease? So the the reasons that women are are dying uh, younger, actually from heart disease, can be attributed to um, a higher burden of heart disease risk factors. I know we were talking about high blood pressure, hypertension, um, high cholesterol, diabetes, and obesity. And these risk factors are also developed in African-American women at younger ages. And as Dr. Backler mentioned, over time, these then can lead to heart disease. And African-American women are also faced with a number of unique stressors, uh, really based on the intersection of their race and gender. And they're more likely to live in poverty than white women. And we as Black women are also three to four uh, times more likely to die during pregnancy for heart-related causes. Mm -hmm. We're also just more likely to die in general during pregnancy. There is a, a genetic link to, you know, some of the, the risk factors, um, including, you know, high blood pressure and uh, diabetes. But I must say, all of these are modifiable um, and can be controlled with uh, lifestyle change and the right medications. Mm-hmm. So um, although they do run in families, I, I don't like to look at them as, you know, I can't do anything about them if I um, and diagnose with these, we can get them under control and prevent you from developing heart disease. In St. Paul, Michael's on the phone. Good morning, Michael. 
I definitely agree with uh, the black population having a higher um, higher rate of heart issues and different things like that. What I've noticed is that growing up, you know, we just have different food choices and, you know, from cultural differences in, the, in uh, how we decide to interact with people and, you know, the stressors of going to work every day and just living, uh, living normal life in general. When I get real stressed out or when I'm under a lot of pressure, I either eat or I don't eat. So, like, I go through this up and down spike in healthy choices or I decide to, like, ignore my health problems. Mm-hmm. You're not alone in that, uh, Michael. And, and I, I should let you know, as we talk about, you know, black people and, and heart disease, uh, I'm a black woman, Dr. Brewer's a black woman, Dr. Beckler's a black woman. Uh, both doctors, I want to ask you, what, what role does chronic stress seem to play in increasing blood pressure and other risks for heart attack and stroke? Uh, as Michael kind of, of notes, um, you know, he has chest pains from time to time. What, what can you say to that, Dr. Beckler? When we look at the data and we slim down everything, so we look at education level, we look at income, all of these different things, we see that at the end of the day, there still is a disparity in outcomes for our black Americans. Um, And so we know that unfortunately, because of systemic racism and walking through this, this world with, with extra stress, this is, this is real. And so, Dr. Brewer, Michael talks about cultural, you know, differences and, and uh, diet and uh, maybe also, you know, weight, what we see in black communities that's different than, than other communities. What role does all of that have to play in, in black Americans being um, at a higher risk for heart attack and stroke? Yes, this is extremely important as, you know, culture over time, you know, we, we tend to uh, follow a, a traditional Southern diet or uh, a traditional uh, cuisine, which may be high in saturated fat and sodium. Um, and also there's a, a culture, and I see this amongst my own family members, that, you know, heavier is better. Back to the phone lines uh, in Egan, uh, Sarah. We go through the annual checkup and we get our cholesterol numbers. I know my father, he had pretty much everything normal, but he ended up getting heart attack. And he ended up going bypass, and a couple of arteries were 100% blocked. So my question is that, mm. in spite of your cholesterol being normal, what is the state of the cholesterol in my heart? So you're absolutely right. Um, cholesterol is just one component of all this, and you can have, um, this is not uncommon, to have normal cholesterol levels and still have heart disease. So a couple of things to think about. Um, One, you, most people, of course, it's always difficult to say conclusions about insurance coverage, but most people are able to see a cardiologist that specializes in prevention like myself, where we take together your whole history and look at how best we define your risk going forward. That might include something like a calcium score, uh, which is a newer test that we do that takes a picture of your heart arteries and gives us a percentage um, a plaque, which is different than narrowings in your arteries, but it shows us, do you or don't you have the beginning of plaque and narrowings in your arteries for us to be more aggressive in prevention. We know that often white men are disproportionately represented in medical studies, and that has an impact. So do we see this in cardiovascular uh, research as well? 
Absolutely. And this is, you know, one of my goals is to increase diversity in our cardiovascular trials as traditionally um, in our large population-based clinical trials, uh, it's very homogenous and, and mostly white men. And many of our treatments are, you know, and, and doses are based off of these uh, studies. So in order to increase diversity in clinical trials, we really have to start meeting uh, women and people of color where they are in their social environments and really hone in on understanding, you know, their reasons for not participation, participating, sorry, in research-based interventions and studies. And this is the only way we'll really address, you know, whether there's some reluctance to participate um, and how to better tailor interventions and in research to meet their needs. We actually go out into the community and educate um, the community on the research process and how the data from clinical trials and research can then be used for their benefit and they are contributing to society um, at large by participating in research. Let's take another phone call from a listener as we talk about heart disease and how to prevent it. In Orono, David's on the phone. Good morning, David. I have a Three grandparents to strokes, mm. lost an uncle at 50 to a, car, uh, to a heart attack, lost a brother at 53 to a heart attack. I'm so sorry. As a result, I went and got tested, did the calcification score, uh, had a score of 55, so I have heart disease. My question is about my children. What can we really do now to try and reduce their risk long term? So I can't emphasize enough if those were my children, I certainly would have them in with a preventive cardiologist in their 20s, focusing on all these things to have an individualized approach of what's going to best meet their needs. But again, I think having a better understanding to look at various um, blood markers and potentially tests and then really, really, really emphasizing the lifestyle for all of our listeners, I would just want to be clear that, yes, it's how we move our body. It's how we eat. It's also how we sleep. It's also the way that we deal with stress. Um, we can't get rid of stress, but having an active strategy for stress makes a huge difference. All of those pieces are part of the puzzle um, as it relates to heart disease. Again, we've been revisiting some of the conversations that we have here uh, at 9 a.m. about health and wellness on Wednesday Wednesdays. And that was a conversation we had with uh, a cardiologist, Dr. Courtney Jordan-Beckler, as well as uh, an assistant professor at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Dr. LaPrincess Brewer, uh, about heart disease and heart health. And as we talk about matters of the heart, I want to let you know about a show that the producers and I are working on right now for next week. Next Tuesday is Valentine's Day. And instead of talking about romantic relationships, we're going to explore self-love. And we want to hear from you. Uh, let us know what you're doing to show yourself love. What was your journey like to self-compassion? And what obstacles have you had to overcome to love yourself? So go ahead now and you can leave me a message on Twitter or on Facebook. I'm at Angela Davis NPR. Right now, though, a reminder uh, about what's happening today. It's the first day of NPR's Winter Member Drive. 
And um, you know this, your gift helps us stay on the air. And it helps us to to reach our gift today of 750 donations from listeners. And at last check, uh, we've had about 130 people step forward and make that contribution. So thank you. But we've got a ways to go to meet that goal. You can make that contribution at mprnews.org or by calling 800-227-2811. Again, 800-227-2811. It's the first day of our member drive. You can get that State Parks Vehicle Permit as a thank you gift at the $15 a month level. It is not available all the time, so grab it while you can. mprnews.org or call 1-800-227-2811. Protect local news and investigative journalism today when you donate mprnews.org or call us at 800-227-2811. We'll talk to you again tomorrow morning at 9. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.